Hey folks, John Curry here. Welcome to another episode of the Secure Retirement Podcast. I have the pleasure of sitting next to a gentleman that I have been reading his material forever. I have every book he's written except his newest one, and I'll have it within a couple of days. I'm sitting here with Moshe Malevsky, PhD. Um, This guy is a brilliant man when it comes to understanding longevity issues and how to plan for retirement. Moshe, it's a pleasure sitting here with you. Thank you very much. It's a huge pleasure to be here. Today, you gave a presentation. We're sitting in Chicago and at the Park Avenue Securities Retirement Master's Summit. Yesterday, we're over at the University of Chicago, uh, the um, uh, School of Business, which was awesome. But I wanted you to share with our listeners, Moshi, some of what you were sharing with our group today. And full disclosure, folks, we're sitting here with a bourbon in our hands. We've had a couple of them already. And I've grabbed this guy at 8 o'clock in the evening, and he is willing to share his time with us. So please, Moshe, tell us who you are and what you specialize in and share with my audience some things they can use to help improve their retirement. Well, John, first of all, thank you for the opportunity to appear on your podcast. It's, it's a great honor, and uh, I'm humbled by this uh, request that you asked me to uh, chat with you. Uh, my day job, as I explained to the audience today, is I am a professor, I'm a, a teacher at a school at uh, York University in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I teach undergraduates, uh, graduates, and executives uh, in the business school courses on finance, insurance, investing, retirement planning, uh, pensions, and uh, our graduates go out and work in the financial services industry. Many of them end up being financial planners and advisors like yourself. So those are the people that I teach, and that's my day job. Uh, The university allows me one day a week to go off campus, and only one day a week, uh, to speak to the broader world, to do consulting work, to give lectures, to write articles. And here we are today at Park Avenue, and I've been uh, spending some time with your audience here. And you did a fantastic job. I want to share this. When you were talking this afternoon, I was thinking, you're teaching these folks. I've been doing this for 45 years. I'm 66. 45 years. I'm thinking, oh, my God, he's teaching people that are 18, 19, 20 yeah. years old, and I've been doing this twice their age. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and to be honest, I'm kind of jealous of you because my audience of 20-year-olds and 25-year-olds don't have the same amount of respect and the same amount of admiration for retirement planning as someone like yourself or I would have because it just seems so distant for them. You know, when you talk to someone who's in their 40s or 50s or 60s and you talk about retirement and retirement planning and how much you need and how much you should spend, it's real for them. This is something meaningful. They see it in the horizon. But when you talk to a 20-year-old about retirement planning, they don't know what they want to do with their life. They don't know what job they're going to have. So it's a much harder harder struggle to get them to take it seriously, which is why, to be honest, I enjoy speaking to older audiences because this is something that's a lot more realistic for them. No doubt. No doubt. And what I love about what you do, Moshe, is you're you're not selling financial products. So what I love about what you do and other people in the world of academia, you have no axe to grind. Okay, so if someone listens to this and I say, okay, I know John, he's a good guy, might even be a client of mine, but they still might have that doubt. Uh, are the products he's recommending really what I need? That's human yeah. nature. Yeah. We're all going to do that. But what I love about your books and your presentations, 
you do it in a manner that you're not promoting any particular product. It could be life insurance, it could be annuities, it could be mutual funds, whatever. And one of your best books ever, in my opinion, was Are You a Stock or a Bond? Oh, thank you. I think that's the best book you've written so far. I appreciate that. I'm proud of that work. So, uh, Well, first, to your first point, uh, because of the fact that my day job, my employer is a university, I am not beholden to the financial industry. So I really speak my mind. And sometimes the financial or the insurance industry agrees with what I have to say, and sometimes they disagree with what I have to say, and that's life Well, that is true. I can tell you yeah. for a fact, I've, I've witnessed people saying, I, I don't like what he has to say. I yeah. said, yeah, but is it true? They go, well, yes. Then, okay, it's true. You know, for many years, the insurance industry did not like what I had to say about guaranteed death benefits on annuities. I felt that in certain circumstances, they didn't make a lot of sense, and the insurance industry disagreed with me. Now, I think annuities are a great idea. Longevity insurance is a great idea, and the insurance industry likes the message. So I really don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, what can I say today that will antagonize a particular industry or curry favor with them? I just go where the research seems to be pointing, and at this particular particular case, it's that, you know, longevity insurance is important. But sort of to get back to the issue at hand, I find that when you're talking to someone from an academic or scholarly background, they tend to have a perspective that's much more detached, arm's length, and they are going to tell the good with the bad. And, and I, I like that. To me, that's refreshing. You know, a lot of people criticize the idea that, you know, economists can't come to an opinion on the one hand and on the other hand. You know, the, the joke is that when FDR was asked who he wanted to nominate to run the Federal Reserve, FDR's response was, I want a one-handed economist. I want an economist with one hand. Yes. And when they asked him why, President, he said, well, because I don't want to hear this on the one hand and on the other hand. I remember reading that quote. I love that. Yeah. But, so, but, but, you know, it's funny that you say that because in the, in the world I live in, people are trained to present their best possible position. I come from a military background of being in the Air Force in the 70s. We were taught you do everything you can. You show the good and the bad of everything. So when someone asks me a question, I give them the good and the bad. I tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because I think you as a consumer deserve to know all the facts so you can make an educated decision. What's your response to that? Yeah, I agree with that. In fact, I, you say the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I would reverse that and say the ugly, the bad, and then the good. Oh, tell I, me why. I, I, I think you really have to be very, very realistic about what can go wrong with any strategy that you're recommending. You did that today in your presentation. I think it's very important to start with the negative. Look, here is what can go wrong. Here are the things that may not work out. And once people understand that, then say, but, you know, here's the good side. Here's the upside. Here are the things that might work out in your benefit. One of the things that concerns me is the rosy pictures that are painted about financial products, the headline number. You know, you may earn up to 12% on this thing. And in I, fact, the I, I odds bet you of, may lose twenty percent. Yeah, you may lose exactly. You know, the odds of earning twelve is very, very slim, and more likely you're going to earn twenty. So I really like to set the groundwork by saying all the things that could go wrong. And once I've calibrated that, then you talk about all the upside. You know, it's funny you say that because when I I'm sitting here listening, to that, I always point out the negatives first. So I guess I am doing the ugly. I I think so. I I think that by telling people the negative first, you're preparing them for the fact that, you know, this isn't a sales pitch. This is an awareness story. 
you know, these are all the things that can happen. And once you've covered all the bases about the negatives, then you can talk about what well, we're hoping for better. Well, you know, it's interesting because I retired on paper January this year. I'm 66. I was 66 mm-hmm. December 9th. So I retired. I took my pension, a non-qualified pension in Social Security. But I love what I do. I'm like, mm-hmm. I want to be like George Burns. I hope I am... 100 years old, then I die, and they have to cancel the show because I couldn't make it because (laughs) I died. I love that, what I do so much, but I do it on my terms. Today you were talking about, speaking of age, biological versus chronological age. Would you talk about that some? Yeah, I I, I would. So, you know, in in, in a nutshell, there's a growing awareness amongst uh, people in the industry that uh, we all have two ages, which is a weird thing to say. I mean, my it, age is my age. But it's true. But the truth is... By the way, you don't know this. Let me jump in. Yeah. I had open-heart surgery, triple bypass, in 2008. So I learned something then about myself. I started changing things. I went from yeah. 284 pounds down to 280. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm fairly fit yeah. now, trim, doing exercise again. So I understand this concept of biological versus chronological yeah. age more than most people in that room. You've lived it. I've lived it. I yeah. am living it now. Yeah. So please yeah. continue. Yeah. So, you know, people's chronological age is the number of times that they've circled the sun. It's what's written on their birth certificate. It's what's on their driver's license. Their biological age, which is a much more important number, is how old their body really is, the cellular age of your body. And if you're 55 years old chronologically, your cellular, your biological age could be as young as 40 or it could be as old as 70. Now, this isn't some great revelation. It's no different than telling someone you look great for your age or you don't look very good. But scientists have now reached the point where they can actually measure your biological or cellular age and compare it to your chronological age. And a large part of the population's biological age is actually lower than the chronological age, which is great news. They're younger than their age. Uh, There's an equal fraction that's higher than their chronological age. By symmetry, if half are under, half have to be above that. And my point, or at least the point I was trying to make in the presentation, is that retirement planning, your retirement plan, should depend on your biological age more so than your chronological age. Your withdrawal rates, the amount of money that you're allocating to your pension, how you're allocating your assets, your investments, your insurance policy should be based more on your biological age than your chronological age. And in the future, there's going to be a growing awareness on the part of people on what their true biological age is. And I think the industry is going to have to adapt to the fact that we're going to start thinking in terms of two ages as opposed to one age. Don't you think it's already happened, though, in the sense that consumers when I, I'm thinking of a couple that I love dearly. They're, um, I won't use names, but he's 80, soon to be 81. She's 78. Both had some uh, hip replacement surgeries, and they retired in their 50s. In their 50s. So here they are in their soon to be, well, should be in their 80s. Yeah. And they're realizing they have to slow down some. But they yeah. traveled and did so many things. Yeah. But if you looked at this couple, there's no way you'd think that they were 80 in 78 respectively a, a guy today it just said to me he said john i've known you for 30 years you look 20 years younger because yeah. of what you're doing yeah. and that was before you took the stage yeah. so i think the people today you know we hear that 70 is a new 60 etc i think we as consumers already feel that way but i think yeah. that the financial services industry has not caught up yet 
No, no. And the attorneys and the compliance officers and the entire infrastructure of financial services hasn't picked up on that yet. I also think it's important to understand that our entire legal system, pension system, regulatory system is geared to chronological age when in fact it should be geared to biological age. So I envision a day, as controversial as this might be, where your retirement age for Social Security should be based on your biological age. If you you're in perfectly good health and your parents live to a hundred and there isn't anything wrong with you I don't think you should be entitled to walk into the Social Security office at the age of 62 and say I want my Social Security <clears throat> benefits you're 50 biologically vice versa if you are someone who is 50 chronologically but you're in poor health you aren't doing very well and your biological age is in the mid 60s maybe you should be entitled to start your pension i think that there's got to be a growing awareness of biological age not just when it comes to your own investment portfolio but in terms of retirement policy as well let's be fair you live in canada correct? i do <clears throat> i love toronto every time i'm in toronto i I walk past your school there, your university. I, here's what I look at. I have always said, all of my working career, that Social Security never should have been allowed to be turned on at 62. Franklin Roosevelt said that Social Security was not perfect, but it was designed to make sure that people didn't retire poor. Yeah. You've got to put it in context. This was a Great Depression. Yeah. Our system has changed to where people think, I'm going to take it as soon as possible. I took yeah. mine at 66. Yeah. Didn't wait till 70 because yeah. of the time value of money, I want sure. the money now. Yeah. But I don't think that Social Security should ever have been allowed at 62. Yeah. 65, 66, maybe even 70, I don't yeah. know. But I'm not a policymaker, thank God. Yeah. I'm just a guy on the street helping my clients. Yeah. And I've had the pleasure of doing it for 45 years. Yeah. And and I don't want to get too close to the third rail of politics. Of, you know, <laughs> should we modify it? And, and is it sustainable? And, and, you know, should we change the current rule? I, I don't want to get too far. All I'm trying to say is your age isn't the thing on your driver's license. That's the only point I'm trying to make. Your age is not the number of times you circled the sun. Your age isn't the current year minus the year that you were born. Your age is something much more important and deeper and fundamental in your biology, and that's the number that should be used for retirement planning. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Would you please share your story personally about your birthday when you turned yeah. 50 and you did the test that you did. Would you share that? Yeah, yeah sure. <clears throat> I'd be delighted to. So, as I had mentioned in the presentation today, when I turned 50, my wife's birthday present, God bless her, to me was a mail order kit that measures my biological age or Bio cellular age. Do you know why she did that? Why did she do that? She wanted to make sure that you're going to be around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. So, I couldn't resist. No, no, I you're absolutely resume. right, John. So the, the, the way this thing works is that they ask you to, you know, puncture yourself and put a little blood in a vial and you mail it away. And, you know, six weeks later they send you an email. And this email, I turned 50. 
And this email that they sent to me said that my chronological age was 50, obviously. That's, you know, that's written on my birth certificate. Right. But that my biological age was about eight years younger, was closer to 42, which intrigued me very much and is what got me interested in this whole topic of biological age. So I spoke to the you know, chief scientist at this company, and he said to me that there is something that we all have in our bodies called telomeres, which is a fancy name for the end of your chromosomes. And if those telomeres are getting shorter and shorter and shorter quickly, that's not good. You're aging fast. And if those telomeres are relatively long, then you're aging slowly, and that's good. And based on the length of the telomeres, they can determine how old your biology or your cellular age really is. And at the time, it struck me as, oh, that's cute, that's interesting, that's a novelty. But as time went on, I realized that this has enormous implications to financial planning. Most importantly, if you have a biological age that's much younger than your chronological age, you're probably a very good candidate for buying something called an annuity, whether it's a variable annuity or an indexed annuity or a single premium annuity, because when you buy one of these annuities, you're betting that you're going to live a long time. And if your biological age happens to be 5, 10, 15 years younger than your chronological age, that's probably a good bet to make you're actually going to live longer than the averages. So that's sort of what got me interested in this whole thing. And if you live longer, then those type products are more important because it gives you a guaranteed lifetime income. And the purpose of this is not to promote a product, but let me ask you this. From the standpoint of what you've learned about the two ages, I took four pages of notes, by the way. What would you say is a takeaway for the person listening to this who's not a professor like you, mm-hmm. I have a master's degree in financial services myself, they're not a financial advisor. What's the takeaway for the average American listening to this? So, so here's the way I like to think about it. As I get older, I want to make sure that my financial portfolio doesn't require decisions from me. I want to minimize the decisions that I have to make as I get older. I want my money to be on autopilot. Me too, buddy. I do not enjoy making financial decisions as I get older. So let me be very clear. I am currently in my 50s. I love asset allocation. Every month, at the end of the month, I look at my portfolio and I wonder, should I have more investments in value or or growth? Should I have more small cap or large cap? Should I have more international? Where's the U.S. dollar going? Maybe emerging market. I enjoy it. I love it at the age of 55. Uh, At the age of 65, will I still be doing asset allocation? I hope so. I think so. I'll still be working. I still will be managing my portfolio. I love making financial decisions. How about when I'm 75? When I'm 75, am I going to really want to be sitting there and figuring out whether I should be taking out 3% or 4% or dividends or bonds at 75? I'm going to want to play with my grandkids. What about at 85? If I make it to 85, do I want to sit at the end of the month with a spreadsheet and try to figure out what I'm selling from and what account to use? 85? I don't think so. What about 95? If I get to 95, if God blesses me and I'm 95 years old, do you think I really want to sit at the end of every month and figure out what the right answer? God, I'll be glad with a decent bowel movement at 95. I'm 66. I will tell you, I like the fact that every month, like a mushroom, it just pops up and money just appears. Automatic. 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 I think that's the most important lesson in financial planning, to put your investment portfolio on autopilot. Absolutely. Would you do this? We're we're over time. Would you please take just a moment 
and share your concept on your book that I love the best of yeah. all of your stuff. Yeah. Are you a stock or a bond? Would you please explain that concept? Well, John, you're really taking me back now. That's so, a great book, though. Yeah. I think it's your best book. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, know, I know you're writing new stuff and yeah. in your world. Okay. If what's your latest piece of work? But yeah. that is, to me, that's the best. Thank you. you that's done. very kind of you. So, so that 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 you know, it's almost like we have to start a new podcast because that's well, a new just, show. Just keep it yeah. brief. Yeah, we'll do so, another podcast later. Yeah. So, so here, here's the story. So, one of the things I've realized is that people, when they're young, you know, I'm not talking about a retiree. So, let's uh, you're 30 years old, right. and, and you're, you're starting your career. You're, you're you have a job. You're you're moving up the career chain. And what I've noticed is that people's biggest investment when they're in their 30s isn't their house, isn't their portfolio, isn't their 401k. Their biggest investment is their job. Absolutely. Their, their career. career. Their career. Their career. And, and some people have invested 10 or 15 years to become doctors and lawyers and surgeons and accounts. Their biggest investment is their career and their job. And the point that I try to make in that book is that your career has risk characteristics similar to a portfolio. And what I mean by that is some people, by their nature, are bonds. Yes. For example, if you're a teacher or a fireman or a police officer or, or a federal or state employee, you know, it may sound like you have a pretty risky job. You're running into fires to put them out. But, you know, you've got job security, unions, very difficult to fire people in those positions. Your career is essentially a bond. Other people have careers that are more stock-like. You know, you're working in the financial services industry. You're an investment banker. You're a financial advisor. Uh, you sell insurance. Whatever it is, your career is more stock-like. The point that I try to make in that book is that your financial portfolio should balance out what your human capital or your job is like. So I'll give you an example. It sounds abstract. If what you do for a living is you sell real estate, you're a real estate agent. Please make sure that your financial portfolio, your 401k, your IRA, has no real estate in it, Absolutely. no REITs, no real estate investment. Why? Because your human capital is a REIT. Your human capital is real estate. Your human capital is a real estate portfolio. If you work in the financial industry, make sure that your financial capital does not have any financial stocks in it. If you work for Coca-Cola, make sure your 401k doesn't have any discretionary consumer goods. If you work for oil and gas industry in uh, you know, the Gulf of Mexico, make sure your 401k doesn't have any of that. What I'm trying to say is that your financial capital and your human capital have to zig and zag at different times. And the message there is make sure that you diversify outside of what you do for a living. But here, here's the point you're making, though, that's unusual. When I read that book, I said, oh, I love this guy. Yeah. That was my first introduction to you yeah. years ago. I forget what year you published. you recall what year? Ten years ago. Ten years ago. Yeah. It was like an aha moment. Yeah. Because in my world, I tell people, if you have a risky job, yeah. don't let your money be risky. Yeah. Don't let your yeah. money be risky yeah. because your money has got to take care of you for the rest of your life, yeah. whatever that is. Yeah. Whatever that is. Yeah. It's the hardest message that I've had to sell. You know, usually when I get up and I talk, I don't get a lot of resistance. That message, the are you a stalker upon, was the most difficult one because it's very difficult to argue with success. Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah. I don't understand that. Why was that hard? It was hard because it only works after it's too late, and then it doesn't help them anymore. I mean, I'll give you an example. So does that mean I'm weird because I got it before? No, no I don't no, understand. No, no, no. I'll, you know, I'll give you an example. We had a very large company in Canada 
the largest company in Canada on the Toronto Stock Exchange was called Nortel, Northern Telecom. Mm -hmm. At one point, Northern Telecom was 30% of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Wow. People that worked for Northern Telecom, it was a big success. They had company. a bunch of money there. They had a bunch of money there because the stock was going up. Big time mistake. Big th they had money invested there. They lived in neighborhoods where all their neighbors worked for Northern Telecom. And for your U.S. audience, I'll tell you the end of the story. Northern Telecom, Nortel, went bankrupt in 1999-2000. Bankrupt. The stock went to zero. So think about what happened. You work for Nortel, your job is gone. Your stock portfolio, your executive compensation plan, gone. The real estate where you live, gone. decline because everybody's selling. 401k, gone. Triple whammy, quadruple whammy. When you talk to them after the fact, they say, oh, Mosh, where were you 10 years ago? Why didn't you tell me this when the stock was high? It's because you're not going to listen to me when everything's doing well. well. All you had to say was read my damn book. Yeah, well, you know, <coughs> a little bit too. I mean, I'll give you another example. You do the U.S. PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, a utility in California. The stock, they've declared bankruptcy. Stock price decline, bond price decline. If you work for the company, your job is at risk. If you live in an area where other employees work, for God's sake, do not invest your money in the same industry where you work. You know, there was a great money manager in the 1990s at Fidelity called Peter Lynch. Oh, yes. Most of your listeners will run Fidelity. He used to say, invest in what you know. Invest in what you know. And my reaction is, I'm not sure that's the best advice. Because investing in what you know means you work there. You know the industry. You're involved in it. Maybe the advice is invest in things that you know very little about because you don't work there. For example... I work in the financial services industry. I work as a consultant. I'm a teacher. I give lectures. I like to invest in oil and gas. Why? Because my human capital has very, very little to do with oil and gas. I don't consult to the oil and gas industry. I don't work for the oil industry. I'm not in the petroleum industry. So it's a good investment for me because it's uncorrelated. It's not dependent on my human capital. I do not hold many insurance companies and mutual funds and asset managers. Why? Because I do consulting work for them. Sure. Why would I want to put the two of them together? Would you please explain that one word you just said? Uncorrelated asset. Most people yeah. have never heard that. Yeah. Would you please explain Uncorrelated that? is just another way of saying when something zigs, the other thing zags. I love that. Correlated is when they both go up and down together. Uncorrelated is one goes up, the other one might go down, might go up. I'm going to tell you what I say, and if you don't agree, just tell me, because we believe in being fair and truthful here. Yeah. I tell people it means they're non-related. Yeah. Is that a fair word? That's a good way of saying it. Or another way of saying it is just coin tosses. You know, Just because you got heads once doesn't mean you're going to get heads a second time in a row. And I think it's like a roulette wheel. You spin the roulette wheel, the roulette wheel has no memory. Those are uncorrelated events. I like to invest in uncorrelated things, not things that are correlated, which is why I tell people we have in Toronto a large industry in the real estate business, a lot of real estate agents, a lot of real estate. I said, do not invest your retirement money in real estate. But very few of them listen. They say, no, 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 it's worked out for me. I work in the, I know the industry. When you talk to a biotechnology analyst, I know the industry. I'm going to invest in biotech. And you talk to small guys. I just don't think it's prudent. I don't think it's prudent. And unfortunately, the only way I'll be proven right is when things go wrong. And I hate to be proven right only when your situation is going wrong. I like to be proven right in good scenarios. Moshe, let's be honest. In 2000, 2001, 2002, then we jump ahead to 2008, 
people lost a lot of money. The people who stayed the course came back. But people made some bad decisions. Let's be honest. Every person listening to this podcast, you have a choice to make. Your decisions that you make today, you have to live with for the rest of your life. Yep. And what you're saying is such great advice. Yeah. We need to we need to wind up here. I would simply say, folks, I would encourage you to search the name. I'm going to spell it for you. Moshe, M-O-S-H-E, Malevsky, M-I-L-E-V-S-K-Y. I rarely do this, as you know, but you need to read everything this man's written. It's unbelievable good stuff. It's mostly something where you think, oh, my God, that's over my head. Stick with it. Stick with it. Moshi, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, today. John. Would you, you please join us again for another podcast? I absolutely future? will. Next time I'm in Tallahassee, I'll definitely look you up. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, we've gone over time, uh, but we're doing great. Thank you so much, and Moshi, for joining us. Thank you. If you would like to know more about John Curry services, you can request a complimentary information package by visiting johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Again, that is johnhcurry.com slash podcast. Or you can call his office at 850-562-3000. Again, that is 850-562-3000. John H. Curry, Chartered Life Underwriter, Charter Financial Consultant, Accredited Estate Planner, Master's in Science and Financial Services, Certified in Long-Term Care, Registered Representative and Financial Advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Securities, products, and services and advisory services are offered through Park Avenue Securities, a registered broker-dealer and investment advisor. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial Corporation is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities. Park Avenue Securities is a member of FINRA and SIPC. This material is intended for general public use. By providing this material, we are not undertaking to provide investment advice for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact one of our financial professionals for guidance and information specific to your individual situation. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, or employees do not provide legal, tax, or accounting advice. Please consult with your attorney, accountant, and or tax advisor for advice concerning your particular circumstances. Not affiliated with the Florida Retirement System. The Living Balance Sheet and the Living Balance Sheet logo are registered service marks of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Copyright 2005-2018. through This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities or Guardian and opinions stated are their own.